2 Samuel chapter 14. As we left off together last time, we saw that David and his son Absalom uh, have at this point developed, it seems, a real uh, wall of separation between them as a father and son. If you remember some of the events that we saw contributed to this, unfortunately in David's house there was a number of different dysfunctional things that happened. One of David's sons, Amnon, had uh, raped uh, his own sister, Tamar. And if you remember, Amnon and Tamar were half brother and sister, same father, different mother. And Absalom was the full brother of Tamar and was enraged when he realized that his brother Amnon had done this. And for two years, David, unfortunately, was passive. He did nothing about this. He didn't address his son. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't punish him in any way. And so ultimately... Absalom growing in his hatred and his animosity towards his brother for doing this horrendous deed to his sister ultimately plotted the murder of his own brother. And after he did that, of course, he realized now he was guilty of murder. He then ran and sort of exiled uh, himself and kind of lived really almost in sort of like a, a banished way for a time. For three years, he was in a, a territory in Geshur, we're told, uh, there with his grandparents, kind of just in hiding because he realized what he had done. And throughout those whole three years, David did nothing to try and reconcile the situation. He did nothing to resolve it. The relationship had been strained. It was evident, it was obvious that things had happened that had caused damage to their relationship. But David, whether he just wasn't sure how to handle it or just felt that, uh, you know, perhaps he had no desire or interest for three long years, let this go on. They were separated, no communication, didn't see his son's face. Ultimately, of course, Joab intervened and we saw kind of put together this plot to revealed to David the error of his lack of reconciliation with his son. Uh, and David consented and said, fine, I, you know, if you want to bring him home, that's fine. You can bring him back. Uh, but we were told there at the end of chapter 14 in verse 24 that the king said to, to, to Joab regarding his son Absalom, let him return to his own house but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. So David permitted him to return back to the capital city to come back to Jerusalem. And so David basically said, look, I'm willing to allow him to come back. But quite honestly, I still don't want anything to do with him. I don't want to have fellowship with him. I don't want to communicate with him. He can live and, and, and we, can, we can pretend we're family and, and that's good enough. But other than that, I really don't want any interactions with him. I uh, don't want to speak with him. Don't really want to have to see his face or spend time with him. And, and David wasn't willing to commit, obviously, as we talked about, to complete forgiveness uh, and didn't really make an effort to try and resolve this. And so it tells us in verse 28, uh, where we left off last time with this verse, Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Now calculate that. Now it's been five years. Three years he lived banished in another territory. David grants permission for him to return home back to the capital city. David still doesn't address the situation. And for two more years now, he lives right in the same city, right near his father, but for two more years, still no family interaction. So it's been five years now since he's seen his son, since he's spoken to his son, five years uh, plus on top of that extra time, uh, seven years really total, that uh, nothing has ever been addressed in regards to the rape that happened between brother and sister, the murder <laughs> that Absalom had committed of his own brother Amnon, one of David's other sons, uh, still completely unaddressed. And in all this time, no doubt, the bitterness, the, the animosity, the tension, the wedge goes deeper and deeper and the wall goes higher and higher relationally. And Absalom is quite frustrated, and we're going to see here, uh, and because of the lack of resolve and the lack of resolution, this contributes to some really, really major problems. And the problems don't just impact now the family, they end up impacting the entire nation. Uh, because of one issue that wasn't resolved. You know, the Bible tells us to be careful. It says in the book of Hebrews, lest any root of bitterness springing up, it says defile many. 
And, and bitterness has that ability. I mean, it just as soon as it starts to sink a root down, bitterness in the heart of just one person, bitterness, animosity, undealt with things. It's amazing how that can begin to blossom and many get defiled. Many people get polluted by situations and, and, and dynamics of relationships that are broken and undealt with and unresolved and so forth. And that's what's going to happen here is this leads to a complete rebellion in Absalom's heart and a usurping of his throne uh, away from the father and, and, and just all these horrific things we'll see in our chapters ahead. So it, with these dynamics, it tells us in verse 29, therefore Absalom, who becomes quite an evil character, we'll see, sent for Joab to send him to the king. Now, again, remember, Joab contrived this plan, the general of David, to bring Absalom home because he could see the longing in David's heart uh, for his son. One has died, another's been raped. His son, who's a murderer, is no longer having you know, any uh, involvement in David's life. So Joab contrived this plan. He went and got Absalom, brought him back. And now for two years, he's been sitting there in a house with nothing being dealt with. So he now sends to Joab, but it says Joab would not, verse 29, come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So this is kind of like contacting City Hall. You know, you, you call, nobody returns. You call, nobody returns. You call, nobody returns. You leave a message, nobody returns. And this is the idea here. So, you know, he's contacted, he's not answering my calls, he's not responding. So uh, Absalom decides he's not going to deal with being ignored. So he sent his servants saying, see, Joab's field is near mine and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. <laughs> That's a good way to get somebody's attention. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Now, I don't recommend that, certainly. Uh, and honestly, Absalom and Joab must have had some level of relationship because you didn't do stuff like this to Joab. I mean, Joab was a military hardened guy who would put somebody to death on the spot. So the fact that he did this, these two must have had some level of relationship because this is going to cause great damage to his crops and his, his wealth and his productivity. I mean, he's just trying to get his attention. So he sets a fire in his barley field and Joab arose and came to him and said, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered, Joab, look, I, I sent to you, I sent you multiple calls and messages. You weren't responding, he says, saying, come here so that I might send you to the king to say, why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there's iniquity in me, let him execute me. So he says, look, what, what did you even bother bringing me back for? If nothing was going to be dealt with, if nothing's going to be resolved or addressed between me and my father and the things that I've done, he says it would have been better for me to just stay where I was. What did you bring me back here for? This is almost worse. Kind of halfway is almost worse than not going anywhere. And so he's embittered by this and frustrated. So he says, bring me to the king. I, I want to be brought before the king. Now, his agenda and his motives are completely impure. And we'll see this as we go on here. But he even says, and you can see how hardened Absalom is at this point and how arrogant he is that he feels so justified that what he did was correct in taking matters into his own hand to murder in cold blood his own brother for the crime of rape against his sister because he says there, if there's iniquity in me, let him execute me. If there's iniquity in you, <laughs> you, you murdered someone. If there's iniquity, but in his mind, see, his perspective is what I did was justified. My father didn't address it, so somebody had to. And he deserved to be put to death. And so, again, he can't even see his own sin. He's so blinded by his own bitterness. He's so blinded by the, the damage of the relationship. He can't even see any error in his own ways that he's contributed to. He says, look, if I've done something wrong, then just tell him to execute me. Because he thinks that there's nothing he has done wrong. So Joab, verse 33, went to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king. So after five years, and it says that he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. Now, knowing what we're going to read going forward and watch what happens, I tell you something, this is nothing other than an outward political stunt on both Absalom's part and on David's part. 
there is there is no father son genuine family bonding and healing and restoration going on here this is what you call going through the motions for public approval that that's what's going on here he bows down in reverence as anyone should as they come before the king when they're invited into the presence of the king so he pays homage and and acts humble before the king well listen a, a few verses from now <laughs> He's going to go out and start campaigning to steal the hearts of the people of the land to make him the next king of Israel and to push his father off of his own throne. So he's not honoring the throne here. He's just doing, you know, going through the motions of what people would expect him to do. And David here uh, kisses him with some sort of a ceremonial type kiss here as he's paying homage. But again, this just goes to show you how it is so possible for people to go through the motions outwardly and to fake things and to do all the right actions, maybe even say the right things, when in the reality, nothing at all is happening inside of their heart. And there's no genuineness, there's no sincerity. And, and we can make this, you know, kind of same error where it's just, yeah, well, I mean, I, I forgive them. And, and, and okay, I forgive you and give them a hug and maybe even, and, but then the reality is, is, you know, nothing has genuinely happened on the inside. There was just a going through the motions of it for the sake of, of kind of like checking off the box. Okay, I, okay, I did the right thing there. I, I kind of did the motion. I went through the practices of those kind of things. When there's nothing resolved, we'll see between the hearts of this father and this son, unfortunately, at this point. And again, we also can be guilty of this just like Absalom is, is doing this towards King David. We can do this towards our king, the king of kings, the Lord. Because remember, Jesus said, these people... Honor me with their lips, but yet their heart is far from me. And truly in vain do they worship me. Imagine it, that, that there is actually, think of this, a worship that God says can actually be in vain. I mean, come on, I, I, I worship the Lord. I mean, I, I showed up and I stood there when they said to stand and I sat when they said, and I, I sang all the words on the screen. And, and I, you know, I, I, but God says we can actually go through the motions of worshiping him but it really just be vain because it's just heartless and there's no genuineness behind it there's no sincerity or passion or, or again we can honor the lord with our lips and yet our heart says can be completely far away from him in regards to what's going on and sadly this is what's happening here and and we god help us never want to be guilty of this whether it's in relationships with people and certainly never want to do that in our relationship towards our lord the king jesus it says in chapter 15 verse 1 after this, it happened that Absalom, notice right away after this little event, provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made a judge in the land and everyone who has a suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. So right away after this seemingly outward practice of reconciliation between him and his father the very next thing you see absalom doing because this has been the agenda of his heart as the bitterness has grown over the years that now he wants to just rid himself of his father and and he doesn't have any in a sense respect for his father so he thinks that he doesn't even deserve to be on the throne he doesn't even deserve to have any position or role certainly if anybody deserves it i do I'm the one who executes justice and knows how to handle matters and <clears throat> take things into, into my hands when it's necessary. And, and so now he begins this whole propaganda stunt we see here of really kind of just uh, sort of promoting himself in a very subtle but yet then gradually more public and, and direct way. It says in verse 1 that, that he provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Again, notice, this is called self-promotion. He provided himself. It does, it, he's providing for himself chariots and horses to pull the chariot and then 
50 men to run before him. Now, 50 people running before your chariot is a demonstration of, of royalty and, and importance, that you're some dignitary, that you have people who sort of run before you to announce your presence and draw attention. Again, this is just all an effort to draw attention to himself. He wants to promote himself, to be noticed, to be recognized before the people. This is just the epitome of self promotion going on here trying to gain people's attention get them to notice him and look at him and it says absalom would rise early so he'd work at this every day he'd get up he said he'd go stay beside verse two the gate and remember the gates of the city were basically the the area where typically the judicial proceedings would happen the gate of the city is where the elders of the land and the judges and those who were in leadership positions would would usually sit during the day and there they would they would strategize if there were military activities to go on, but they also would hear cases and lawsuits. And you would come to the judges who would sit there at the gate of the city and you would explain your case to them and they would offer counsel or render judgments on the situation. And if anything was too difficult, then those things would be brought to the king, to the highest power. And it was a way of sort of the king delegating out his power. And then if they couldn't handle something, it was brought to the next level. Well, uh, this is where Absalom goes. He positions himself there. And whenever anybody came, it says Absalom would show as if he were very interested in them. He would right away begin to ask questions. Again, he wanted to appeal as a very concerned individual. What city are you from? So tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, and everybody likes to feel, you know, noticed and recognized and cared for. So he'd make a little extra effort. And so tell me, I mean, I mean, I don't want to just know your situation. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I mean, where are you from? What city are you from? Wow, this guy's really nice. I mean, he, he doesn't just care about my situation. Just what's going on? Tell us and get out of here. Take a number. And this guy's actually asking about our lives. He wants to know where we live and, and what's going on. And, and, and as they would describe their situation, he would then, again, sympathize with them in a very uh, seemingly passionate way. He'd say, verse 3, look, your case is good and right. I mean, yeah, I mean, you have a real point here. I mean, your situation, I mean, that definitely deserves attention. This is a very good Thing that you've brought and, and you're, you're right in needing to have some uh, you know, resolution to this. So he acted very sympathetic, very concerned about their issues, concerned about social issues and situations and problems in the community. And again, being very sympathetic and empathetic towards them, he says, but there's a little problem. He says, uh, there's no deputy of the king to hear you. In other words, he says, you know, unfortunately, the king's kind of gotten a little, uh, you know, uh, apathetic and he doesn't seem to care about the people's problems and he's not appointing people to deal with issues and and he's so busy doing whatever he does he's kind of lost track of the everyday society and and he sort of begins to portray david as the leader and the king in a negative light and so he starts to draw a critical attitude towards david and he starts to say the problem is is yeah i mean he's he's kind of being negligent as a leader and he's not really paying attention to things that need to be addressed and he's just getting lazy and overlooking things and he says therefore verse 4 but he says I'll tell you if I were made a judge in the land yeah, I mean if, if, if they would let me address what obviously I can see needs to be done because I'm leadership material here I mean if they would just give me an opportunity to function in the way that I know people need to be helped, he says, then everyone who has a suit or a cause would come to me. <laughs> I'd be their top justice. They'd certainly come right to me, and he says, and I would give them justice. I'd resolve their situation. I'd give them equitable treatment and make sure their case was dealt with fairly. And so it was, it says verse 5, whenever anyone came near, this whole process of him just again promoting himself and at the same time casting a very negative light towards King David and making the king and the primary leader look as if he was a failure and dysfunctional and unconcerned and not caring about the people. And half of the issue is because David was occupied doing what David was supposed to do and Absalom, quite frankly, just had way too much time on his hands. And because he didn't have nothing to do or a role or responsibility, he was able to spend time doing things that he shouldn't be doing. And so here he is, you know, promoting himself and going through this process, kind of trying to win people over and just, again, uh, like again, sort of like a, a political campaign for himself. Here he's running in verse 6, says, In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king 
for judgment. Notice they were coming to the king, but Absalom was circumventing the process and was basically sort of, again, just usurping the authority of David and stepping into the place. And verse six says, so Absalom, look at the word there, stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Notice the Holy Spirit's very clear. It doesn't say Absalom won over the hearts of the men of Israel. It doesn't say he gained the hearts of the men of Israel. It says he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. David, as a leader, as a shepherd king, as God's anointed king, David won the hearts of the people. David earned the respect of the people because remember, even before David was king, David was going out before the people and fighting their battles and and David through sacrifice and personal service and caring for the people and, and shepherding them and actually doing things to help and to assist them when he had no role or no title. He was just son, serving, remember, under Saul initially and he was already functioning like their king and like their leader even before he was. He was just doing it out of the, the, the desire of his heart to do what God felt or he felt from the Lord to do to help the people and so therefore David gained their respect. Remember they started saying David is one, you know, beat his, you know, Saul beat his thousands but David is tens of thousands and the people started earning or developing a respect for David because he was earning that and he was winning their hearts to him but here Absalom just comes on the scene and he's not looking to earn their respect or to to win them over and gain their their favor it says that he's just selfishly looking to ambitiously steal their hearts away to steal their hearts away and again this reminds me in many ways of the Really, the comparison between the Lord and between the devil. The Bible tells us that Jesus says that our enemy, the devil, only comes to rob, kill, and destroy. He comes to rob. This is what he does. The devil seeks to steal people's hearts through deceptive, manipulative, crafty means. He baits the hook well, and he knows how to, in a crafty, subtle way, steal the hearts of people to follow after him rather than follow and after the true king who should be in their life, which is the Lord Jesus. And he does it through deceptive, dishonest means, just like Absalom. He's being deceptive and dishonest. And so Satan seeks to steal the hearts of people where Jesus, through truth and love and sincerity and servanthood and sacrifice, wants to win the hearts of people. And so Absalom here, stealing the hearts of the people, which leads now to this rebellion in Jerusalem. It says, verse 7, Now it came to pass, after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I've made to the Lord. Now, notice that term there. It came to pass after 40 years. There's some discrepancy here. Some translations actually render that four years rather than 40 years and different manuscripts bring about different translations uh, you know, a couple of things that could be a possibility here uh, one being that when it says it came to pass after 40 years we don't know exactly what that directly is a reference to so this could be a reference if it is indeed 40 years that in some inference to 40 years after the time since David's reign began or even the anointing when he was first anointed as a king that 40 years since that time this is now when this major rebellion comes to pass through Absalom it could be a reference to Absalom's age it came to pass after 40 years that at this point Absalom's 40 years old or it could potentially be uh, if it seems to flow with the context for you better that it should be re- better translated four years not 40 And that this is a reference to that these kind of things were going on for about four years before Absalom executes the fullness of his plan to bring about this rebellion. If the case is that, it could be that it is a copyist error, that certain manuscripts had 40 and some have four, and that this would be a copyist error in the translation process. At the end of the day, if it's a copyist error, there's nothing doctrinal or theological that's at stake here, whether it's four years or 40 years. There's nothing to to get hung up on. The key is that Absalom now goes to David and he says to his father, Daddy says, let me go over to Hebron because I want to pay a vow which I made to the Lord for your servant took a vow, verse 8, he says, when I dwelt in Geshur in Syria, saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. So again, he's using God speak and he tells a flat out lie to his dad. 
He comes to David and he says to him, listen, he says, Father, would you grant me permission? Because when I was back in Geshur, when we were separated and I was banished, I made this vow back then. And I said, God, if someday you bring me back to Jerusalem, then, then I will serve you. And he says, and it's happened. And so I need to go pay a vow to the Lord over in Hebron. Again, notice he's using spiritual speech. He's using language that, that is connected to the things of God. But everything in his heart is completely deceitful and dishonest. And the God speak means nothing. It's just a pretense and a cover up that he's using as a cloak to hide the sinful ambitions that are going on in his heart. Well, what a sad thing. I mean, I mean, it's such a sad, sad thing when people have unhealthy ambitions or sinful things going on in their hearts and they use spiritual lingo and hyper-spirituality to just be a cover-up for what's really going on inside of their lives. I mean, he's about to go lead a rebellion starting in Hebron and usurp his father's throne and, and cause a, a palace coup. And, and he's using this kind of language saying, Dad, I need to go pay a vow to the Lord. And of course, as a father, David's thinking, well, you know, Absalom really hasn't been the most spiritual kid. If you want to go serve the Lord's son, Absalom, I mean, of course, his father's going to say, that's fantastic. You made a vow to the Lord. That's new for you. Uh, go serve the Lord's son. Go to Hebron. So David gives him permission and says to him, verse 9, go in peace. He, um, that's great, son. Go pay your vow. Serve the Lord. So he arose and he went to Hebron. And Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. So he goes to Hebron because his intention is from there to blow the trumpet now officially, publicly, as even gradually stealing the hearts of the people. And he is now going to, in a self-proclaimed way, establish and assert himself as the new king in the land. And he's going to do it in the land of Hebron. So he sends these spies and says, blow a trumpet and tell the people, when you hear the trumpet, everyone proclaim Absalom, the new king, now reigns in Hebron. Now, why does he go to Hebron? Well, a couple things could be. One, if you remember, David's original capital was in Hebron for seven years when he first started reigning over the area of Judah. And then David moved the capital to Jerusalem later on. Now, maybe the people of Hebron are a little bit feeling burnt by that. So he found a sympathetic weak spot there. Hey, those people are a little bit kind of upset with dad anyway, so I'll go manipulate them. <laughs> uh, because they, they had a throne there for seven years and my dad took it away. And so, perfect. I, I'll take advantage of that vulnerable area of struggle in their life and I'll, I'll manipulate and go set my throne up there. Obviously, it's an area away from Jerusalem as well, about 15, 20 miles away. He's thinking it creates a little space and he could begin to build his revolt more strongly if he didn't do it right in Jerusalem initially. So he now proclaims himself as the new king and Absalom, it says, verse 11, went with 200 men invited from Jerusalem and they went along innocently. So some didn't know and did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices and the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. So notice there's this growing conspiracy. It's getting stronger and stronger, this revolt to take over the throne now from his father, David. And now we're told verse 12, that so persuasive this become, but one of David's chief counselors, Ahithophel, someone who is one of David's sort of chief advisors, now chooses to side with Absalom and, and he calls for Ahithophel to come to him. And again, notice verse 12, all this is going on. Look at the words, a conspiracy. It's growing strong. People are increasing numbers, turning away from the true king and and and. and participating in a divisive activity. They're entering into revolt and rebellion and, and, and disobedience and sinful behavior. And all this is going on, look at right in the middle of verse 12, while they're offering sacrifices. They're still worshiping the Lord. Nothing, I mean, yeah, hey, we're still worshiping the Lord. I mean, yeah, we're, in fact, we're still, we're still on the worship team. We're doing all kinds of crazy stuff, but we're worshiping the Lord still. Look, we're offering sacrifices. 
Boy, it is amazing. Titus tells us that, that people can actually profess to know God and in works deny him. And again, here's this whole thing again. There to me is nothing more probably tragic and insulting than to be doing what is disobedient to the will of God and to be using as a cover-up and a pretense to hide that spiritual things. That disgusts me. It disgusts me. You know, it's just so sad. I mean, the dishonor that that causes to the Lord. The hypocrisy of those kind of things. And, and, and here, they're, they're offering sacrifices while they're creating a conspiracy and rebelling against the true king on the throne and all these kind of things. I mean, just the, the selfishness, the um, ambition and agenda, all this going on, and yet they're at the same time offering sacrifices and dropping the Lord's name. So sad and unfortunate, dishonorable to the Lord. Verse 13, now a messenger comes to David reporting back, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So verse 14, David and all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, he said to them, Arise, let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, We are your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Now look at David's response. David finds out about this revolt of Absalom and rather than put his foot down in stubbornness, David instead, in this very submissive way, open-handed with humility, says, you know what? We need to get out of here. And his first concern right away is for his family and his friends and all those who are his close associates there and also for the people of the territory of Jerusalem. He says, listen, it, it, we need to depart and to get out of here. And instead of put his foot down and say, what does he think he's doing? Rebellion, we'll squash his rebellion. And instead of fighting to retain his position or, or trying to you know, get a tight grip on it and say, I'll fight to the death. You know, this is my role, not his role or any of that kind of stuff. Instead, in complete humility, in complete submission, David is more concerned about the welfare of his family and his friends and the people of God than he is about holding on to his own position. That's a pure heart. He says, listen, if, if we try and resist, this guy's already murdered his own brother. He says, he may come here and attack us and attack Jerusalem, notice, and he says, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. He said, this could become a bloody civil war. And a bunch of innocent people are going to get hurt and potentially die. And David is more concerned about what is best for the people and loving the people and protecting the people because David's a genuine leader. Where Absalom just cares about his agenda. And Absalom, to, in Absalom's mind, people are disposable. In Absalom's mind, hey, if we kill them, we'll just get some different ones. And, and that, that's the difference between a genuine leader and... And someone who's just got an agenda that's not really a genuine leader. Absalom probably would have done that. Come there and just started a bloody civil war and put people to death. So David now, in this humble way, says we need to just escape until things cool down and we can figure this out. And verse 15, look at the loyalty. The king's servant said to David, again, he had shows you it won their hearts because you can't match this kind of loyalty. They say, David, we are your servants ready to do whatever my Lord the king commands. That's loyalty. And I look at verse 15 and I think, boy, what a great thing for us to say towards our king, towards Jesus. We are your servants, ready to do whatever my Lord the king commands. Because keep in mind, they're saying this at a time when it's getting hard now. It's not easy. Problems are happening. There's pressure and, and the situation is becoming heated and dangerous. And when the hardships and the difficulties come, they don't say, David, uh, sorry, I mean, servants, when it's easy, but when it's getting hard, um, you're on your own there. Or, or David, we're going to, instead they said, David, it doesn't matter if it's hard. We are your servants. We're devoted to you. 
And whatever you command us to do, no matter how hard it is and what it is, David, we are your servants before we are anything else and we're submitted to you. And I think, man, how beautiful. Because I tell you, a lot of times it's right. It's the difficulties we face. It's the hardships. It's the problems. When, when difficult things come into our life, then we really find out how truly loyal we are to the Lord. When it's not easy to stay faithful to the Lord. When it's not easy to stay devoted to King Jesus, when everything is pressing in on us that might want to make us run away or abandon the Lord and say, mm, if I stay faithful to the... But here in the hard moment, they remain faithful to the Lord. That's genuine commitment. And that should be our heart. Lord, even when it's hard, even when the problems come and the difficulties arise, Lord, we're your servants and we are ready to do whatever you command us to do. So verse 16, the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left 10 women, concubines, to, to keep the house, to maintain the property there. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. And then all his servants passed before him, the Cherethites and the Pelethites and the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath passed before him. So these were, again, remember sort of David's mighty men as we referred to them. This is sort of David's royal bodyguard, his ancient secret service. These were, were hired individuals. Notice, not even Jews, but those who were trained to protect the king. These were those who had, many of them, been with David through the wilderness when Saul was trying to kill him. And these men had formed a bond because strong leadership breeds commitment. And, and, and when you have someone who's a strong leader, it breeds a level of commitment. And these men had come to love David and to respect David. And, and their hearts were knit and intertwined with him. And they had rallied around him. These had become, as I said, sort of these mighty men that rallied around David. They had been with David through thick and thin. And these were his royal staff and bodyguards. And the king, verse 19, said then to Ittai, the Gittite, why are you also going with us? Return, he says, and remain with the king. For you are a foreigner, he says, and an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. This man hadn't been around that long at all. David says, we don't even have a history, really. Why are you staying with me? These 600, I understand. But he says, I mean, you and I have barely been together that long. Uh, they've been with me for a long time and developed a bond. And he says to him, should I, verse 20, make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. So again, notice David's heart. He, just, he wants to release him from obligation that David genuinely loves people. He cares about the people. He's a shepherd king and David says, listen, it may not be in your best interest to remain with me and no pressure, no obligation. And he says, really, I, I'm not concerned about what's best for me. I want what's best for you. That's genuine leadership. David says, I want what's best for you. And it, and it may be best for you to just, hey, take the opportunity. You, you haven't even been with me that long. No pressure, obligation. And he says, take your family, take those with you. Head back, depart, and, and don't allow yourself to become embroiled in this very difficult thing. So David's trying to release him from any obligation as David's being pushed out of Jerusalem. But verse 21, but Atai answered the king and said, as the Lord lives and as my Lord, the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord, the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. Now, that, that is probably one of the most beautiful statements of loyalty you could find in the Bible right there. He says, David, listen, it's a choice to be faithful to you. And he says, I'm devoted to you. And he says, whether in life or death, wherever you're at, I'm going to be right there. And he says, if that means living or if that means dying, that I'm going to live with you. Or he says, I'll die back to back with you. And just this, this you know, encouraging word to David. And I tell you, it's such a time like this when his own son is revolting against him and the pain of people betraying him to have somebody like this, just the loyalty, the camaraderie, the faithfulness to say, David, I realize that I could depart, but I don't want to depart. I want to stand by your side, David. I want to be with you and, and, and I want to you know, do this together with you. And again, that loyalty, the encouragement that brings, no doubt, to David's heart at this time to hear that. So David said to him, verse 20, go, and cross over. In other words, okay, you're free to join us. So Atai the Gittite and all his men 
and the little ones who were with them, family as well, they all cross over. And then all the country wept with a loud voice and the people crossed over. And then the king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. So they cross over the brook Kidron, departing from the city of Jerusalem. There's grief going on. People are weeping because of, again, the the effects, the damage of the sinful actions of Absalom revolting against authority and, and, and causing the division that he's causing among the people of God with these activities. And verse 24, there was Zadok also. And the Levites with him. So now we're the priests and the Levitical ministers who helped serve in the temple and tabernacle. Bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. And the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. So he says, listen. I appreciate what you're doing, but he says, don't, the ark of God doesn't have to follow me. Bring the ark back where it belongs. Bring it back into the the, the tabernacle there so that it's among the people of God. Remember, the ark was the, the representation of the place where the presence of God was manifest among the people. And David's heart was, listen, the people need the Lord right now. The people need the presence of God at a time like this. So he says, don't bring the ark with me. The ark doesn't have to follow me just because I'm the king. And I think David also knew that even if the piece of furniture, the ark wasn't with him, the Lord was with him. And I think David realized that. You know, unlike mistakes they had made at times before, David realized, you know, the ark's not just like some lucky charm, some magic foot that if I have it with me, then the Lord's with me and I'll win battles. with it. And he said, it's the Lord. David had a personal connection with the Lord. So he says, the people are going through enough so he says, bring the ark back to the city and, and position it back there where it is, where the people worship the center of the people of God's lives. And he says, verse 25, look at he says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place, the house of God. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. So look at the heart of David here again, the, the, the spiritual maturity in this situation. David's going through probably one of the biggest crises in his life, a, a, you know, a majorly hard time, his throne's being stripped away, he's being pushed out of the, the, the kingdom there, all these kind of things taking place, the painful betrayal. And, and David says there, look, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he's able to bring me back. And so he's saying, I, I don't have to strive. If the Lord wants me to be back on the throne, he'll put me back on the throne. I love this heart of David here. This is an attitude of faith. This is an attitude of submission that he realizes that that living by faith is living without scheming and it's living without striving. And David says, if the Lord wants to put me back on the throne, he'll put me back on the throne. (laughs) I'm fine with it. And just with this open-handedness, he just kind of lets go and, and he trusts nothing is going to hinder or restrain God from restoring something back to me, even if it's been taken away from me. So David says, they can take my throne, they can take my home. Honestly, they could take whatever they want because if God lets them take it, then let them take it. And if God wants to give it back to me, it doesn't matter. God will give it all back to me. And what a marvelous attitude of faith and humility and submission, that open hand, that shows this man's trust and dependence. And boy, would to God that we would have that in our lives. Maybe something's been taken from us or something's happened and we're thinking, oh man, I need to take control or fix this. Or, and, and to be able to just say, look, if the Lord wants to put the pieces back together, he'll put the pieces back together. It, even though it's been stripped from me, if the Lord wants to give it back to me, he'll give it back to me. It doesn't matter who stripped it from me, who hurt me, who harmed me. And and just this beautiful attitude of trusting what the Lord is able to do. And then just, again, the surrender. Look at verse 26. He says, but if the Lord, for some reason, has no delight in me, then let him do to me as seems good to him. He just, he says, if for some reason he doesn't want me to be king anymore, then not my will, but his will be done. And if for some reason he's removing me from the throne, then if the circumstances are what God is orchestrating, then he says, so be it. The Lord's will be done. And just again, this surrender to not need to try and 
make something happen or have his way. I love this heart because I tell you, as we grow in spiritual maturity, I don't know about you, but I find myself more and more when it comes to the things of the Lord saying, Lord, you know, I don't want my way. Lord, you choose for me. So Lord, whatever you want for me, give it to me. Whatever you don't want for me, don't give it to me. And Lord, if you want to give something back to me or you want to take something from me, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And to just have that trust that God's will is better. And David here just says, let him do as seems good to him because God's always going to do what's good in our lives because he's good by nature and we can trust him. So the king also, verse 27, said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and you and your sons with you, Ahimehaz, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. So I will then wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes to me, comes from you to inform me. So David says, listen, I'm telling you to go back with the ark, but he says, look, you know, I, I, I'm not a fool. He says, it would help to have some informants on the inside. So he says, you go back and, and, and you serve as informants for me. And what you hear, send word to me. What's going on and why has Absalom done this? And, and David safely removes everyone from the bloodshed and all the worst catastrophe happening, takes a stance of peacefulness here. And he says, but you serve as my informants and, and send word to me out here in the wilderness. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. And so David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. He and his head covered and went barefoot, a picture of just grieving and sadness. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Listen, that is the right heart towards division, towards separation, towards sin. You know, when these kind of things are happening, and people's lives are being hurt and wounded and fractured and people are doing selfish, harmful, destructive things, that really should be the, the hard attitude. There should be grief. How sad what this is going to do to hurt people, to stumble people, to, to damage people's lives and, and to just interfere with God's purposes and what God's plan would have been and could have been and, and, and to have this heart of grief. And so David here and the people, they're, they're sad and they're weeping. They're not necessarily angry. You would think they would be angry. But instead he's sad and he's weeping over this. Reminds us of Jesus, again, crossing the brook Kidron, as the Bible tells us. Jesus weeping over the people there in Jerusalem. David is the king, the son of David, picturing Jesus, no doubt. And verse 31 says, Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Now, David gets word Ahithophel, his chief advisor, one of his closest friends, has now sided with his son Absalom in this rebellion. And so David now gets word of this painful, bitter betrayal. And this no doubt hurt and wounded David deeply. He wrote Psalms referring to this. For example, Psalm 41.9, David says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55, David says this, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man of my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. So David, describing the deep, deep pain, he says, listen, if an enemy hurts you, that hurts. But that just hurts on one level. But he says, when it's someone close to you, your friend, your lifelong confidant, someone who you have this deep relationship with and the pain of betrayal, and David says, oh, it's unbearable, the pain of that. And he describes the, the pain of how someone close to him, and of course this, again, just foreshadows the betrayal of, of Judas towards Jesus. And how that same thing, the pain it caused our heart of our Lord, Judas, who Jesus discipled and taught and gave access to his life and his teaching and his ministry and loved him, and yet Judas betrayed Jesus so painfully. And here David being betrayed so painfully, and listen, this is just, listen, this is just a part of leadership and life. 
If in any capacity you have any role of leadership, to some degree there will be a time or occasion when you are painfully betrayed by someone close to you. Perhaps multiple times. And just life in general, part of life, unfortunately, involves selfish, sinful people turning on one another, doing hurtful betrayal and acts of of hardship in this way. And here David crushed by this experience, the Psalms describe it. And David said, look what he does in response though. He said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshiped God, there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. Again, now he's grieving. And David says to him, if you go with me, you will become a burden to me. He says, but if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I'll be your servant, O king, as I was with your father previously, so I will now also be your servant, then you may defeat the council of Ahithophel for me. So David says to Hushai as he comes to him, he says, listen, he says, in all honesty, he says, if you come with me because Hushai was older at this time, he says, you're actually going to be more of a burden than a help. He says, you'd actually be more helpful at your age because we're on the run. If you would go back to Jerusalem and you could serve as like a double agent there for me. And you, because of your wisdom, can defeat the council of Ahithophel who's now going to be working together with Absalom. And I like what David does here. David simply says to him as his king and his leader, and he says, listen, you would be more useful doing this than doing this. And boy, there's great wisdom to that. I hope you are praying more and more, Lord, how can I be most useful? Not, Lord, what can I do? But, Lord, how can I be most useful? And if, Lord, being the most useful is not doing this, but it's doing this, Lord, your will be done. How can I be most useful? You're my king. You're my Lord. You're my leader. You tell me how and where I can be most useful. And this is what David is telling to Hushai. And he says, go back. You can serve to defeat Ahithophel's council. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar there with you also? Therefore, it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall then tell Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Indeed, they are there with their sons. And he says, by them you shall then send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, as David asked him to, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. So the, the, the saga begins to build now. The people are getting into different positions. L- let me go back to this for a moment because I wanted to end on this note. Notice back in verse 31 and 32, when David gets word that he has been bitterly betrayed by Ahithophel, who's chosen to now go and, and, and be with Absalom in this revolt, Look what David does. He says in verse 31, I pray, Lord, turn his counsel into foolishness. Lord, defeat all of his good advice. Make it just come out backwards and wrong. And he says, also verse 32, that he worshipped God. Take notice. David's hurt. He's betrayed. He's painfully wounded. And David's way of approaching it is he prays and he worships God. And you know what? There is no more therapeutic process. There is no more healing aid when you have been painfully wounded by someone, whether years ago in your past and you're still nursing a wound, or whether just recently in some way, there is no more helpful healing thing, no more therapeutic way to recover than to do those two things, to pray and to just worship God. And it's in that that in this amazing way God helps us to process it properly and begins to bring healing to our hearts. Let's stand together and do that tonight as we turn our hearts to the Lord.